Okay, uh, we now reach the part of our worship service where we, we hear from God. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Should we prepare our hearts as, as we prepare to hear now from the Lord? God, we, we thank you that this part of our worship service is every bit as much worship as when we are singing songs together. And we thank you that you have chosen in your providence to leave us with your word in the Holy Scriptures. And so that when we study them together, when we turn our attention to this word, it, it, it really is you speaking. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me to communicate your word honorably today and under the power of the Holy Spirit. And, Father, I pray that we all would be receptive to what it is that you're saying to us today through this word. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. From verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Today, as we continue our study of Mark's gospel, we're considering together, from God's word, one of the greatest supernatural signs and wonders in the history of the world. I want you to realize how incredible what we're studying today is. It's the transfiguration 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. The three synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark and Luke, each of them contain this event. And it shows us, therefore, how significant it was to the early apostles, how important they saw this event as being. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Before we dive into exegeting the text together and and pulling it apart and understanding it properly, I think it's worth remembering something. I think we need to remember what is written for us in 2 Timothy 3.16. How many of you know that passage? It's Paul writing to Timothy and reminding him of this, that all Scripture, say all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Did you know that? All Scripture, not just the red letters, Not just your favorite stories, not just verses that talk of God's love, but every single passage and every sentence and every word, indeed, of all of Scripture is God-breathed. That Greek is theanostas or theanopstas, okay? It's breathed out by God. Those two words, theos, God, and pneuma, uh, which is breath or spirit in Greek, okay? So every word is breathed out by God. God. And what does that mean? It means that every word of Scripture is the power of God to us. Every single stanza is God's infallible, inerrant word to his church. There are no insignificant books of Scripture. There are no insignificant passages. All of it speaks to us of God. And therefore, we are to enjoy it and glory in all of it. That's why we do this in this church and teach from Scripture as best as we can, verse by verse, because we recognize that Scripture alone is God-breathed. Not the writings of Graham Phillips, not the writings of any other pastor, but Scripture alone is what is theanostas. And that is what is going to build you up in your faith. Not you coming and being entertained by some clown behind a pulpit, which I am, but you hearing from the Word of God. But what's important to remember as well is that though Scripture is God-breathed, though every sentence and word of the original text is God-breathed, the chapter divisions and the verse numbers, they came later. You know what I'm talking about? The title headings of every passage. Those are not God-breathed. Those were brought later to help us to divide up what we're reading and uh, use verse addresses with one another so we can do memory text and things like that. It's wonderful. But they're not inspired. And so it's important to remember that, especially as we come to study this passage. Because originally this, this letter, Mark, would have been read out in one long chunk. Can you imagine that? Sitting down and hearing the entire Gospel of Mark read out for you. No verse divisions. No, okay, come back later next week. We'll read more of it. But all in one go. And so the end of chapter 8 would have been completely connected with the start of chapter 9. And in fact, this first verse of chapter 9 
is really a hangover from the end of chapter 8. It's Jesus having a conversation, finishing off a conversation with his disciples that he had been having in chapter 8 in Caesarea Philippi. Do you remember that's where we were geographically in the last time we talked about Mark? We're in this place called Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northeast of Israel uh, towards Syria. And it wasn't a Jewish town, it was a pagan town where they had this cave, the cave of Pan. They'd set up this grotto, this little temple there, and there was pagan worship going on in this town. Jesus is there talking to them and asking them the question, who do you say that I am? Do you remember that? And this is the end of that conversation. After he's told them, listen, if you want to follow me, it isn't going to be all sunshine and rainbows. You're going to have to pick up your cross and come after me because that's where I'm going. Did you understand that? You understand that today, that following Jesus, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. You know, you can head into some churches today and you think it was. You think it was all about prosperity, all about the blessings, all about you being pumped up and becoming an influencer in this world and becoming important, rich and famous and happy. Well, guess what? That's not what Jesus taught, unfortunately. Uh, I think we all wish that God wanted to give us all Ferraris and have us all living in, in mansions. But um, though that may be his providential will for some of us, even those who do have money will suffer for their faith in this life. And we are called to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. And so this first verse where Jesus says, some of you here won't taste death until you've seen the kingdom of God coming in power. That's the back end of that same conversation about taking up your cross. Isn't that interesting? So what did Jesus mean when he said to them, some of you won't taste death until you've seen the kingdom of God after it has come with power? Now, there are a couple of schools of interpretation, a couple of different views about what he meant here, and I want to run through them. Because one of those ideas about what Jesus meant is held by atheists and skeptics of the Bible, and they say, listen, you say that Jesus is the Son of God, don't you? And we go, yeah, we do. And they say, well, listen, I'll prove to you that he's a false prophet. I'll prove to you that he's a false prophet because look, here in Mark chapter 9 verse 1, Jesus says, some of you lot won't die until you see the kingdom of God coming in power. He's talking about his return. And guess what? He never came back in the first century. So there you have it. Jesus is a false prophet. How many of you heard that one before? I can see a few of you smiling. So that's one interpretation. They think Jesus is talking about his return. And he's saying, some of you here won't die until you see me come back. That's one understanding. The second understanding is that Jesus is talking about Pentecost. He's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit in power. And he's saying, some of you won't die until you see that. When my kingdom comes in power, when that upper room is filled with the power of the Spirit and there are tongues of fire on top of people's heads, you won't die until you see that moment. That's another understanding of that text. But there is, I think, another really compelling understanding of this text. Because the most obvious interpretation of what Jesus is talking about here is that he was speaking about what's about to happen immediately next. How many of you understand that one tool to understanding what the Bible is saying 
is context. Context, okay? We've got to understand what happened before he said this and what's about to happen after he said this. That's the context of the Scripture. And so, each time that we read this saying of Jesus, each time in, in each three gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when we see Jesus saying, some of you aren't going to die till you see my kingdom come in power, each time he says it, in each of those three gospels, do you know what follows it immediately after? A little Greek word, kai. Say kai. That means and. And. Okay? And six days later, they went up on a mountain and he was transfigured before them. That Greek word kai is there for a purpose. It's there to connect what's just been said to what's about to happen. Okay? So, the most obvious interpretation, I think, is that we're supposed to connect what Jesus says about his kingdom coming in power with what happens in the rest of Mark chapter 9 of his transfiguration. Because what is the transfiguration but a foretaste of Christ's ultimate return? That's what it is. So yeah, you could say it's when the Spirit comes in power, if you like, but I think what he's talking about is what follows immediately next, is when he takes three of them, because he says some of you, doesn't he? If it was the Pentecost, wouldn't he say all of you? Because there's only one who's not going to be there, and that's Judas. <laughs> but he says some. So I think, I think it's reasonable to understand that Jesus is talking here about his transfiguration. That's what Mark wants us to understand. Jesus has given them this hard truth already about them having to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And that's what you've got to do when you follow Jesus. How many of you understand that? That our walk with Christ is a walk of, of self-denial. I don't know about you, but the older I get in the Lord, I've been walking with Jesus a while now. But every year, I find that he puts something else before me. He puts something else before me and says, Graham, you haven't put this on the cross yet. You haven't denied yourself this yet. How many of you understand that feeling? Yeah? It's progressive. It's continual. The more we walk with him, the more we realize that we're actually holding back stuff that should be on the cross. It's a walk of self-denial. But immediately after he says this, he turns to them and, and he encourages them and he gives them a picture of both his and their future glory. Because brothers and sisters... There's more to the Christian life than self-denial and suffering. There's also glory and transfiguration. And that's what we're going to talk about as we study this passage today. Because in a sense, the end of chapter 8 talks about Jesus' first coming. His suffering, his obedience on our behalf. His death, his resurrection. And this second passage here at the start of Mark chapter 9. It talks about his second coming in glory, in power, with the saints in majesty. So Mark says after six days, so six days after he's had this conversation, ending in verse 1, 
he takes Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up a high mountain by themselves, and he is transfigured. Say transfigured. Transfigured before them. In fact, the Greek word there is metamorpho. Metamorphosis. You heard that word before? Change. Transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, whiter than Daz could bleach them. Now, a quick question. Why do Matthew and Mark in their Gospels say that this happened six days after Jesus has the conversation with them? But Luke says it happened about eight days after this conversation. Doesn't that seem at first glance to you like a contradiction? Now if God's word to us is God-breathed, if the Bible really is inspired, if it really is infallible, Shouldn't we not find error in it? Shouldn't all the Gospels agree? Well, it looks to me at first glance like a contradiction, but how many of you understand that when we, we look closer at the Bible and we examine these claimed contradictions, they always turn out not to be contradictions when studied more closely. So let me show you how. Matthew and Mark say six days later, don't they? But if you read Luke in your translation, you might have something like about eight days later. It won't say eight days later, it will say something like about eight days later. That's because Luke uses this word, Jose, not Jose Ramos, but Jose, okay? It's a little word that's an approximation. It's like saying something like eight days later. Something like eight days later. It's actually really only Luke that uses that word. He uses it in Acts and he uses it in his Gospel. You understand Luke wrote Acts as well. So he's using an approximate of time. He's not saying eight days later this happened. He's saying about eight days. Whereas Matthew and Mark are saying this happened six days later. So there is no logical inconsistency here, okay? I could say Keith is six foot two, all right? I'd probably be wrong. I could say he's about six foot two. I wouldn't be wrong, would I? How, how tall are you? Six four. So if I said he's about six two, would I, would I be making a nonsensical logical fallacy? No, because I've used an approximate word, okay? So there is no logical inconsistency here. And where was this high mountain that he took them up? I like for you and me to understand geographically what's going on in the Gospels. Don't you think that's important? That you understand where these things happened. So he's been having the conversation with them in this place I told you about, Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northeast of Israel. And guess what? It's underneath the tallest mountain in all of Israel. You've seen this, haven't you, Mum? Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. How many of you have been to the Holy Land before? Mount Hermon. Covered in snow. Uh, they have skiing up there. And this is the tallest mountain in Israel. Now, church tradition said that the transfiguration happened on Mount Tabor, which is some way to the southwest of Caesarea Philippi. It's quite far. Uh, it's south of Galilee, actually. So, it seems unlikely that it was Tabor. It's more likely that I think this happened on Mount Hermon, a very high mountain, 
and a mountain that was actually used for pagan ritual worship back in the day. So the fact that Jesus does this on that mountain in the place where so much pagan worship was happening is significant. Now, another thing that's interesting about this passage is that Jesus only takes three disciples up there, doesn't he? It says that he took Peter, James, and John. But why not take them all? Have you ever thought that? He's just said to them at the end of the last chapter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, right? But wouldn't this just be the best moment to take the rest of them up Mount Hermon and say, I told you so. He was right. Look, I've got Elijah. I've got Moses. My face is shining. I am the Christ. This would be the aha moment, wouldn't it? Surely. Why not take the scribes up there? Why not take the Pharisees up there? This would show them. It would prove them wrong. I don't know about you, but some of the things that Jesus does just sometimes don't make sense to me. And they didn't make sense to his disciples either. It's only in hindsight that they understand why Jesus did this. Like why he always told them, don't tell anyone about this. He's just performed some amazing miracle. Don't tell anyone. You know? That doesn't make sense to us here in the West in the 21st century. And I think so often for us, we only understand what God is doing in our lives in hindsight. So often in the moment, we, we can be confused. God, why, why am I walking through this season? Why am I struggling? Why aren't you speaking to me with an audible voice right now? I really need you to do that. But you're not doing. Why? So often in the moment, we struggle to understand why God is doing the thing that he's doing. But I tell you what, every single one of you, I bet if you could look back 10 years in your life, you'll say, wow, God moved so powerfully there. He prevented me from marrying that person that would have been totally wrong for me or from doing that silly thing that I was really considering doing or from just connecting me with that church that I was so blessed by. It takes hindsight sometimes, doesn't it, to see the hand of God moving in our lives. I think as well, we here in the 21st century, we're a bit like Peter. We're a bit like Peter. We're so minded of the things of man. Do you remember Peter, last chapter, and he's saying, no, Lord, you will not suffer. You're not going to die. He begins to rebuke Jesus, and he says, get behind me, Satan. You're minded of the things of man, not the things of God. And I tell you what, 21st century Western England, we are so minded of the things of man. We are marinated in the things of man through our education, through our culture. You see, the things that we think are valuable here uh, in our social media Western society, we think that impact is valuable. We think that profile is important. We want vindication in the eyes of man. We want the world to applaud us as we walk with Jesus, don't we? We think that's what God wants. That God wants Christians to be approved in the eyes of man. And so, we're concerned and confused when we look at Jesus. And he doesn't seem to want that. And we superimpose our desire for everyone to like us onto Jesus. Jesus, why? 
You had this perfect opportunity to prove yourself to all these people and you missed it. He does the same thing at the feeding of the 5,000. He's got 5,000 people who've just witnessed a miracle and he sends them away. Jesus, no, this is your captive audience. Come on, capitalize. You know, for all of us in the 21st century, we don't quite understand it. For all of us pragmatist church leaders who are like, Jesus, this was your opportunity to build the church. You missed it. No. Constantly through Scripture, God reveals himself to the few, not to the majority. You know, in John chapter 2, doesn't it say that when Jesus was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name. Right at the beginning of his ministry, many believed. They saw the signs he was doing. They thought, this is a guy I want to be around. But guess what it says about Jesus? It says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let me say this to you. Don't entrust yourself to people. Don't entrust yourself to the opinions of people, of culture. Jesus didn't. God isn't interested in gaining consensus approval from mankind. Does it ever strike you that that's true? God's not out there trying to get votes. He's not campaigning the streets, trying to get approval from the Guardian, from the Times. <laughs> he doesn't need it. God's interested in relationship, not consensus opinion. He's interested in transforming hearts and minds. Now Luke tells us that Jesus had gone up on the mountain to pray. And that's why he'd gone up. That's why he'd taken the three disciples. And it was as he was praying that he was transfigured. His, his, uh, literally, his visage, the way he looked, was altered. It was as he was praying. I think there's a picture there for us if we want it. And I think it's this, that when we follow Jesus, particularly into this, this place of solitary prayer, it's there in that place of secret prayer where we see Jesus glorified. It's that place where he becomes altered to us. How many of you have followed Jesus into that secret place of prayer and just found him altogether lovely, altogether wonderful, had him be glorified in your sight, in your heart? Augustine said this, when the sun, he said, what the sun is to the eyes of the flesh, that is what the sun is to our natural eyes, that is the Lord to the eyes of the heart. You know, I believe that we in this church today and the church of Christ in the Western nations, we need to see this picture of Jesus. We really need to see this transfigured Jesus today, this glorified Jesus do you know why? It's my opinion. I might be wrong. But I think, I think that many have become overly comfortable. 
overly comfortable with this kind of sandal-wearing, tossle-haired, meek and mild Jesus. And that's true. Listen, let me tell you, that's true. He's meek and mild. Amen. He's loving. He's earthy. He's real. But let me tell you, when he comes back, he ain't going to look like that. And it's going to be a shock for many people when he comes back riding that white horse on that day. And I think the church needs to be ready for his second coming. Not looking back to his first. I think we need to be reminded of his glory. I think we need to focus on his majesty just as much as his meekness. Because if we get out of touch with either the humanity of Jesus or his divinity, we, we get into trouble. Anyway, let's move on. Elijah and Moses appear, don't they, with Jesus. And they're deep in discussion with him. Luke 9 has some more information. It says that they were talking about his departure. That is his death, his resurrection in Jerusalem that's about to happen. I always used to think that Elijah and Moses had come to kind of give Jesus a pep talk. That's I don't know why I had that in my mind, but I thought there's these older guys coming and they're like, come on, Jesus, you can do this. Uh, you know, let's talk through it. Have you got any concerns or questions? That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. Because isn't it true that the angels in heaven, they were so keen to hear what the plan of redemption was going to be like. They, they were so rapt hearing Jesus preach. How is he going to do this? How is he going to accomplish redemption? for the people of God. And I think Elijah and Moses were hearing from Jesus about what's about to happen. Wow, so this is how you're going to do it. They wanted to discuss with him. They wanted to hear. They wanted to converse with him about this. Moses and Elijah as well, they represent for us two things. They represent for us the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are being summed up by these two men. It's a wonderful prophetic picture, I think, of the relationship between Christ, the Messiah, and the law and the prophets. You see, we don't really know Jesus properly unless we see him through the lens of the law and the prophets. Do you understand that? Because without the law, we don't understand our need of him. We don't see why we need Jesus. I go out on the streets and preach the gospel with, with, with Garth and, and the rest of the team and Maggie. And we go out and very often people don't understand their need of Jesus. Why do I need to be saved? I'm doing quite well on my own. I'm a good person. I love my mum. I take the kids on holiday. Why do I need a saviour? You don't know you need a saviour until you know that you're a sinner. And if the Lord does one thing, it presses the conscience it puts pressure on the conscience until you have to say, I am a sinner. In the eyes of God, I am a sinner. I may think that the person standing next to me is a less moral being than I am. But I know that in the eyes of God, I am a wretch in need of a saviour. The law does that for you. Secondly, the prophets... If we don't understand the prophets, we're not going to understand what kind of Messiah to expect. Because that was the fault, really, wasn't it, of the Pharisees. They'd searched the Scriptures, but they hadn't found what kind of Jesus or what kind of Messiah to expect. 
When we look at something like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, that tells us what kind of saviour to expect. And Peter says to Jesus at this point, he says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. It's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I like the way Mark puts this, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. <laughs> I like the way Luke phrases, the way he puts it as well. It says, about, it says of Peter, not realizing what he was saying. How many of you have been in Peter's place? You come into that place of prayer, you garble out a few words, and you think, good grief. Not realizing what he was saying, Graham started over. Um, it's very often that we find ourselves just like Peter. And on one hand, Peter did really get this very wrong. But on the other hand, there are things that we can commend here in the way Peter responds. He got it wrong in a way because he assumed that Christ was just merely a peer of Elijah and Moses. He was on a level with them. You know, let us make three tents. One for you, Jesus. One for Elijah. One for Moses. Isn't it wonderful? Wow. Three of the men of God here together on this mountain. I think in another sense as well, it really tells us something about Peter's motivation still. Peter's still clinging on to this wonderful vision of Jesus coming as a conquering ruler, isn't he? Do you remember in the last chapter he rebuked Jesus? You're not going to suffer and die, Lord. Far be it from you. You're going to reign in glory. You're going to, you're going to throw off Roman rule. It's going to be wonderful. And so Peter's seeing Elijah and Moses. He's thinking, this is it. Jesus, I told you. I told, if you just had more faith, you would have seen this happen, Jesus. And here they are. Let's capture this moment. And in fact, Luke actually notes in his gospel that Peter says this as Elijah and Moses were disappearing. So it's almost like he's seeing them disappear and he's like, no, 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 wait, wait, let me build three tabernacles. We can do this. Don't go anywhere. I've got this handled. It was a desperation. He was still clinging on to that idea of who he thought Jesus was supposed to be. But on the other hand, I think we've got to commend Peter. Because although he was frightened, although he was terrified, he still had the boldness to speak with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Isn't that wonderful? We can say the dumbest things to the Lord, and he still doesn't rebuke us. He still doesn't turn us away. He loves us. Wonderful. And also, he's right. It was good for them to be there. Amen. It says, a cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. They're overshadowed by a cloud. It's, it's not a nebulous or a strata. We're not talking about a, a rain cloud here, a cirrocumulus. Is that a cloud? Remember back to year nine geography now. Um, it wasn't a rain cloud. We're talking about a glory cloud. This is the cloud that Moses saw. This is the cloud that Ezekiel saw in his vision. It's the cloud that... The, the priests couldn't minister under it. Can you imagine that? You imagine a cloud of glory so powerful that you can even stand up? Imagine that. That's the glory of the Lord. That's what that looks like. Don't mind the noise. We don't mind the noise in this church. Is that okay? Now this cloud comes, overshadows them, and they are scared. They are worried. They hear the voice of God. Imagine that from this cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
Listen to him. How many of you understand God doesn't even mention Elijah and Moses? He doesn't even mention them. This is my son. Listen to him. There are so many. There are so many men who want to place other names alongside the name of Jesus, aren't there? There are so many men who want to place other philosophies and other religious beliefs alongside Jesus and say, isn't it wonderful? They all work together. They all teach the same thing. Isn't it wonderful? Whether you're a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu, you go and serve your God and we'll all muddle along together. But God says, this is my son. Listen to him. No mention of the law. No mention of the prophets, just of Christ. There is one way by which any man or woman is saved in this world, and it's through Christ and Christ alone. Not through Christ plus law, not through Christ plus special revelations, through Christ alone. Listen to him, brothers and sisters. Suddenly they look around, they no longer see them anymore, just Jesus only. They're coming down the mountain and they're questioning Jesus about what he meant by don't speak about this until I have risen from the dead. They're still concerned about what this can mean. What does he mean risen from the dead? Clearly they still don't quite believe Jesus about what he's got to do. Maybe they're thinking he's going to rise spiritually from the dead or metaphorically from the dead. And there are many that think that way today and We certainly shouldn't take everything written in our Bibles completely and utterly literally because there's lots of prophetic language in there that we've got to interpret prophetically. (laughs) But equally, we shouldn't just say that something is metaphorical just because we can't comprehend of it. It's just like people will teach, well, the flood, wasn't it really just a flood in that region? They can't comprehend of a global flood. You know, well, six days creation? Uh, Can we say each day was a billion years? You can see, we can't conceive of it, so we we begin to make it metaphorical, okay? We've got to be careful with that mode of interpretation because that's what the disciples did. They got it wrong. And they're saying, doesn't Elijah have to come first? Jesus... Elijah just came and he's gone. He, he's got to stick around because he's got to turn the hearts of the fathers to the hearts of the sons. Can you call him back? Otherwise, it's not going to work. But Jesus says, listen, he's already come. He's already come. Who's he talking about? John the Baptist. John the Baptist may not have been literally Elijah, but he came in the same spirit of Elijah, calling the sons of God to repentance calling them to repentance and Jesus says they did whatever they wanted to to him just like Christ has two comings coming as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and then he will come again in glory as we read about in the book of Revelation in a sense I think we can understand some will say that 
John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. He is the fulfillment entirely of that passage in Malachi. Others will say that he is the fulfillment of Elijah's return, but also there will be an end time return of Elijah that they will say is spoken about in Revelation 11. Whichever view you take, Jesus here is talking about John the Baptist as being that Elijah. Let me conclude because we want to eat our picnic and I think we've, we've been blessed by this message. In conclusion, what are the applications for us today, brothers and sisters? Firstly, that we know that Jesus has two comings. His first coming 2,000 years ago, low, lowly and meek, and then his second coming, which will be like this transfiguration in glory. And I want you to remember who was with him, Moses and Elijah. When he comes back, he'll have his saints with him, coming on the clouds. He's going to be bringing his believers, his people, with him. What's even cooler is the disciples recognized Moses and Elijah, didn't they? None of them had seen them before, but they're like, it's Moses and Elijah. Do you know you're going to recognize the people you know now in glory? You're going to recognize your brothers and sisters in Christ right now in glory. Isn't that wonderful? Incredible. Secondly, we're to understand that we as believers, if you're in Christ today, you will share in his glory when he comes. Though you may suffer in this life, you will share his glory for eternity. Isn't that wonderful? And thirdly, the transfiguration is a picture of your life with Christ. You know, the Bible talks about the fact that we are hidden with Christ, that we are seated with Christ, Ephesians 2, in heavenly places. That's now. If you're a believer in this place today, you actually have dual residency. You're here, but in a sense, you're with Christ in heavenly places. And as you walk with him, Paul also says we're transformed from glory to glory. And that transfigured word, metamorpho, is used again in Romans 12.1. You know the one that says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word there is used as well about the, the renewing of the mind. So as you walk with Jesus, you might not always feel it. You might not always be consciously aware of it, but you too are being transfigured. You're being transformed to look more and more and more like Christ in his radiant glory. So I want, I want to pray now as we finish. I want you to just dwell on that fact. We talked about the fact that you need to take up your cross and follow him. If you want to follow Jesus today, I'd encourage you to do that. I'd encourage you to have enough with this world. Be done with this world. Die to this world. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow him. We talked about that. But if you're a Christian who's got your cross upon your back and you're walking after him, I want to remind you today, in all of your hardships and difficulties in following him, that you're being glorified with him too. That's your ultimate destiny, is to be transfigured in glory with him, to return with him when he comes again, to rule and reign with him when he comes again. I want to encourage you that this life is not all there is. That this world full of pain and suffering and hardship is not all there is. There's eternity with Christ. And if you're in him, 
you're sharing that eternity with him. So Lord, we thank you for this incredible story of the transfiguration of your son Jesus on that mountain. We pray today, Lord God, that you too would come and again transfigure us, change us from glory to glory to glory. Make us new, we pray. Renew minds in this place today. In fact, I want to pray that specifically. I think that the Lord, there's a grace from God today to renew minds in the area of persistent sin. Persistent sin patterns, things that we do that we know are wrong, that we just are fighting and it's a struggle. There is grace today to be transformed, to be transfigured in that area, whatever it is. And so, Lord, we pray that you might glorify us, transfigure us before our brothers and sisters and before the world. Pray this in the mighty name of Jesus.